Aloha and welcome to episode number six of the Public Art Podcast, where we talk story with artists, community members, and story holders working together to envision Wailuku as a public arts district. My name is Kelly McHugh-White and I manage Wailuku's small town big art initiative, working to develop a public arts district that's focused on its distinctive sense of place, history, and culture. Today, I sat with a force to be reckoned with, Heather Knowles-Nigard, founder of the Des Moines Poetry Slam, which is now more than 20 years old. Uh, who's working? She's a working artist here on Maui, as well as one of the many smiling faces that runs the wildly popular Wailuku Coffee Company on Market Street. I met Heather through a social media recommendation when, due to community demand, I was attempting to put together a spoken word or slam poetry activity for ages 13 through 18. We have so many people in common, and yet we hadn't actually known one another. So meeting her a few months back and reading her published works has been such a treat. Today was about getting to know her as the eternal slam mama, learning more about the art form and promoting her upcoming free slam poetry workshop presented by Small Town Big Art at Sabato Studios' new 38 North Market Street location and scheduled for Saturday, October 2nd from 3.30 to 5.30 p.m. You can learn more about this at smalltownbig.org slash slam and by listening to the super fun podcast. Please enjoy. Perfect. <laughs> um, so we're going to jump right in and um, I'm going to ask you to take four minutes to tell me your life story in as much detail as possible. Okay. Well, hi, my name is Heather and I um, am new here to Maui. I've been here a couple of years, but before that, I'm a Midwesterner by birth and most of my entire life. Um, I was born in Southern Missouri and my folks are still there to this day. I grew up in a town in the Ozarks called Carthage and uh, surrounded by lots of amazing people. My mom is an artist. She's a clay artist now full time. She taught for a while, but she's just an artist and that's the best part. Uh, my dad is a mechanic and a race car driver which is pretty cool. He also had a regular day job because we all have to pay our bills some way, but he's a fantastic mechanic and uh, does that by night and weekend. Now he's retired, he does it all the time. So he builds race cars and vintage cars like 57 Chevys. Awesome. So um, I uh, grew up there and I was an athlete for years. I'm very tall, so I was, I was a three sport, 16 time letterman in high school and, and went on to college um, and I moved to Iowa um, which is how I got to my college. I went to a small place called Graceland University and I played volleyball and basketball there, which helped pay for some of my school. And I um, majored in English, so I have an English writing degree. And that's also where I met my husband. We went to college together, which is kind of cool. Um, and after that, I, I moved to Scandinavia for a about a half a year I lived there and worked as a nanny and just traveled and we have extended family there so I got to see them and and learn a little bit more about that language. L ended up back in Des Moines, Iowa where I spent most of the rest of my adult years up until about the late 40s. Raised two amazing kids and I founded the Des Moines Poetry Slam in 2000 and ran it for about 10 years every month 
And then I handed it over to my friend Johnny, who still runs it to this day. So it's 20 years old, and I am the Eternal Slam Mama, which is awesome. I get to mentor and be friends with all of these amazing poets and artists and uh, see where they go with their uh, next creative endeavors and things like that. So um, I, I worked at Better Homes and Gardens for 14 years as an editorial assistant, so I got to see how magazines were made and contribute to some of them here and there, which is pretty fun, and met a lot of amazing creative people along the way who I still consider my friends. Um, and a couple of years ago, I reconnected with my friend David, who was a friend of mine in college. There were four of us that graduated. The year we graduated, there were four English majors, me, Scott, Pete, and Dave. And um, we all, you know, went our way in the world and did things. And Dave and I eventually reconnected um, years ago. Actually, it was on MySpace. It was even before Facebook. <laughs> And then we took that friendship over to my, uh, Facebook, and we've continued to be friends. And then the world finally aligned for us a couple of years ago, and uh, we reconnected in person. And we've been married. We've been together three years, and we've been married now for a while. And I've been here on Maui for two, going on two and a half years. So, um, what I would like to do though is is bring that poetry slam to Maui and get some performance poetry going and figure out who who are my people here on this island, who are the performance and uh, poetry people. And we're all here, we're all just kind of hiding out in the wings because that's what we do. But um, so that's pretty much where I came from and, and I'm here ready for the next chapter. Holy moly, that so. was four minutes and one second. There you go. <laughs> that was perfect. <laughs> well done, someone's a performer. I, Watch the clock. I'm a slam poet. I've yes. watched the clock before. I know. Yeah. So before, I'm going to ask you to, to share a piece of your writing in a moment. But before we do that, so you're the eternal slam mama, <laughs> um, yeah. founder of the Des Moines poet Poetry Slam that is now 20 years old, founded yep. in 2000. How did that happen? And that might be a story. It might not be a quick response. It's a little bit of a story, but we can we can boil it down. Um, so I I was always a writer. I've written ever since I was um, like junior high, high school. Like so many people, write poetry when they're teenagers because you're full of angst and romance and heartbreak and anything else. Um, and so you kind of gravitate to whatever. Uh, speaks to you. In my pa my case, it was poetry. So I, I always had a little notebook in my um, giant purse that I drug around everywhere with um, athletic shoes in it and anything else I needed for the day. Um, and so I, I wrote. And when I went to college, I um, thought, okay, well, I'm going to be an English major. I love I've always a reader. I, I grew up in the library, lived a block away from our public library. And I, it was like Norm from Cheers. I'd just walk in and the librarians would be like, Heather, hey, and always pointed me to the best stuff, even as a, as a grade school kid. I loved being in the library. So um, as a reader, I eventually turned into a writer and I enjoy doing it. I think I'm pretty good at it. I, I, en I enjoy it. That's the most important part, I enjoy it. And uh, just like my mom is an, a physical artist, like a, a clay artist or a painter or someone's a, an embroidery artist or, you know, does uh, works with fabric or something, 
Uh, mine just happens to be words. I enjoy it. I enjoy putting them together like puzzle pieces. I enjoy the, the sound of it. Um, and I've come to learn how much fun it is to watch it translate from the page onto the stage. So um, I always wrote, and in the mid-90s, I was writing a lot. Um, uh, and I, I was with, I was actually running the writers group at Barnes & Noble in Des Moines because I worked there. And so I got, um, they needed somebody to ride their work, run their writers group. And I was like, yes, that's the perfect, I get paid for my job and I get to hang out with all these people I like, so cool. So I met several writers in that group and we actually formed a subgroup because the Barnes and Noble group was quite big. So we formed, you know, five or six of us and we would meet on our own, critique each other's work, help each other out, and we put together a little anthology, a self-published anthology of our work because we wanted it to live somewhere outside of our journals which happens with poets, you know, you have, you, you write all this stuff and then it doesn't go anywhere. And I'm just, I'm not comfortable with that. I want it to live outside of my notebook. So we put together this little anthology and we did several readings around town and in, in, in Des Moines and then down in Missouri where I was from, just kind of did some stuff to feel it out and performed and, and, uh, people kept asking us, have you ever seen a poetry slam? Oh, have you been to a poetry slam? This is the late 90s. And we were like, no, I don't know what that is. And if you have to remember though, this is before YouTube. Mm -hmm. This is so early internet. It's very early internet. So we all just barely had an email address. But um, so we went back and we um, searched things and found uh, audio clips of slam poet and we found a documentary called Slam Nation mm -hmm. that was done in the late 90s, uh, mid to late 90s. And uh, we watched it. I was like, that, that is what I want to do. That is so much fun because it showed how much energy these poets bring to um, their words. So it, it's a mix of... Uh, a little, the best slam poets are often theater people as well. They, they're not afraid to be on stage and really um, give it their all, whether they're memorized or not. And so we were just so excited about it. It was really fun. And Des Moines at that time was kind of a sleepy little, uh, the streets rolled up at five o'clock downtown. It was a sleepy little place in some ways, but it was right on the edge of a renaissance. And, and we kind of saw it and we were so lucky. And so we were like, we wanna do that, a couple of friends and I. And so we worked on it and started making some plans and talking to people around town. Where can we, where can we do this? Well, you don't wanna do, we didn't wanna do it in a bar cause we'd lose all of our teenagers. So a coffee shop, great, that would be perfect. We found a perfect home for it downtown and uh, they welcomed us with open arms on a, you know, a Tuesday night once a month, which was their slowest night. They didn't make any money at all. And sure, you can have our stage. And they were so kind to us and they, uh, they provided us with prizes and stuff. And the people I was, I was coordinating with, um, their life situation changed and some of them moved away and things. So it ended up just being me. By the time we actually launched it, it was me launching it basically and taking control. So I just kind of became the de facto slam mama and uh, said, you know, I want to see this show and it doesn't exist. So I guess I'm just going to have to make it. So we made, I made it. 
And uh, it, it's just really grassroots. And I just put up flyers like you did in the late 90s, early 2000s. Did some email stuff, but I put up flyers at bookstores and cafes and stuff around town. And once a month, um, we just started getting together in late 2000 and off it went. Mm-hmm. And we just, I just created it. And when you put it out there, and there were some months that it was very slow. There were just a few people, really not even enough for a slam. And that's okay. We'd get together and do an open mic or we'd talk story or we'd read each other work. Uh, in other months, it was, you know, bursting at the seams mm-hmm. with people. So you just, it was very field of dreams. I built it and they came. I have to say that Wailuku (laughs) is still very much a flyer-based community, and that might be one of my favorite things about it. Right. (laughs) So that's not too far away. I made lots of flyers back (laughs) in the day. (laughs) And your own zines, right? Yep. I've been making um, zines and chat books since the 90s and early 2000s because I, I just, like I said, I don't want my stuff to languish in a journal. Uh, I really enjoy it. And I mean, I submit to stuff. Um, other journals and and stuff, but sometimes turnaround time is forever, and sometimes you're just tired of sending it to people you don't know. You know what? I just want this to exist in the world. So I made my own chat book, which is just a self-published um, little regular size piece of paper folded in half and stapled. I have a long arm stapler, and I've made thousands of zines and chat books nice. with it. And um, I just, I, so I would make them. I make like a hundred and then I just give them to my friends and family for like Christmas or something each year. And if I had some, I'd sell them at shows, but really I just gave them away. Cause it's way more fun at that time anyway. It was way more fun just to make sure that it gets out there. And I'm still kind of of that mindset. Well, you're a quintessential artist is what I'm hearing, coming from the mindset of an arts administrator, where I'm the person that gets paired with artists to help Mm. them, (laughs) you know, get their work out there and get compensated for it. So, yeah, that's usually not your job, right? I just want it. Yeah, I just want it to be seen. That's Mm -hmm. the best part is to because I know what it means to me. Maybe someone else will be affected by it in a great way. And that's the only important part. Mm-hmm. You know, rarely does anybody pay their bills with poetry. Well, and that's okay. Yeah. But um, we all have to try. <laughs> well, you know, I, I was an art major. I was a studio art major in college. And I tried so hard not to be um, because I was always told that you don't want to depend on your passion for income, right? Mm-hmm. You're going to end up resenting it mm-hmm. or maybe going commercial and resenting yourself, right? Mm-hmm. So keep those passions close to you. But ultimately, I couldn't, I couldn't stay away from it. You know, I was a, a writing major, which I, which I continued with. I was a French major. I was a psychology major. And then I ended up with, yeah, just the creative writing and the painting mm-hmm. <laughs> and kept going from there. But really tried not to for that reason, right? Because I do right. know a lot of folks that have been very successful working artists for a number of years and maybe have stepped far away from their initial intent but yeah I don't I don't I can't imagine ever giving it up yeah I just always know that uh, the rent has to be paid so you make sure like I said 14 years of um, better homes and gardens in one of those divisions and so I got to be around creative people all the time. They weren't poetry people necessarily, but they were creative people and mm-hmm. they understood where I was coming from and they respected me for that. In in the day we did our jobs mm-hmm. and at night we did other things too. Yeah. And they can all live together, so that's cool. Yeah. 
One thing you um, shared in your story of the Des Moines Poetry Slam was that the best poets tend to be theater people. Um, because one of the reasons we're chatting today is to promote your youth slam poet workshop right. that we're trying to get off the ground for small town big art. I wonder if you have ideas on how others can break in, right? Because it might be super intimidating. I mean, I don't think so for that age group. You never know, right? And I'd be curious what your husband, Dave, because he's a teacher at Baldwin mm -hmm. High School, yeah? yeah? What his feedback is also as a thespian, right? So, I mean, there is certainly a group of young people that live in this world that are ready to share and are passionate and maybe they're performers and don't know it yet. Mm -hmm. And then there's maybe this other group of, of young people that are feeling a little timid or intimidated mm -hmm. or unsure whether or not their words might have value beyond their own pages and their own mm -hmm. journals. So how do we get how do we get that population kind of stoked? Um. Well, we definitely, the best part about running the slam, I always thought in the beginning, I thought, oh, this is great because now it gives me an outlet for the stuff I want to perform. But really the best part has been watching people get on stage. That's really, in hindsight, that's really uh, my purpose, was getting giving people a safe space to get up and share their poetry. And um, in the world of slam, you know, it's a competition. And so somebody has to be a winner at the end of the night. And that's what kind of gives it a little bit of, it, it jazzes it up a little bit. It gives a little energy to the room. Because if you've ever been to a poetry reading, it's often really dull. It's very, it's very polite. And, you know, and you should respect whoever's on stage. That's where I'm coming from. You should respect whoever's on stage, whether it's the first time they've ever been on stage or if they're the National Poet Laureate. You should respect whoever has the stage. Doesn't mean you have to like their work. Doesn't mean anything except you respect that they're up there doing a really scary thing. Because it is really scary to get up there and read in front of people that you know or don't know. I actually have more nerves when I read in front of people I do know uh -huh. because I want them to be pleased with me, with whatever I've produced. So to strangers, it's much easier because I don't know those people. Right. So they're either going to like it or they don't. But if I have an audience of especially like um, peers, other poets that are around that know me, I want to... I want them to enjoy what comes their way. But um, the main thing I think people, especially teenagers that haven't done this before, need to understand is um, it, it is a safe space. That's my, that was my number one goal with the slam, is not to produce a whole bunch of people who win every month. Who cares who wins? Really, in the long run, who cares? Um, you can be the best poet there and not win. It's just a game. The main point is you have a, a safe space to come up and perform and get the respect that you deserve. And if someone doesn't like what you say or how you, how you put it out there, um, we encourage them not to say anything. If you're really put off by this poet, don't clap, don't boo, don't say anything. We never ever boo the poets. That's that's the main number one rule of my slam anyway. You never ever boo the poets. You may remain quiet, 
But more importantly, if you really like something, show them that you like it. Clap, snap, hoot and holler, whatever. Get the energy in the room up because that will encourage them. And in the 20 years that I've been around it, 20 plus years I've been around it, um, so many people who will never be poets, it, that's never their profession. 99% of the people I know never ever will think I want to even make a book that's they just want to get out there and get their words out maybe try something new um, the point is that there's a safe place for them to go and do it get feedback get love from their um, community just because they had the gumption to get up and perform yeah. so that's really the most important part and and it's a nice safe place and if I've hugged one 17 year old poet, I've hugged a hundred of them, like you did great. It's all, and their hands shaking and the papers rattling, you know, because they're so nervous and it's okay. Cause then they got it out of the way. Mm -hmm. And the next time it'll be a little bit better. Mm -hmm. And if you read the stuff I wrote at 15, 16, 17, rah, it's so, it's so teenage dripping with, you know, whatever. And you just keep writing and you just keep getting better. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that's the cool part yeah. about it. But how would you just to back up a little bit, mm -hmm. a little bit, distinguish between a poetry reading, and then I'm not sure, in your opinion, if slam poetry and spoken word are the same. But how would you distinguish between those? Yeah, in my opinion, they're the same. Okay, they're so the same. So um, a poetry reading is often. Let's say, it, well, if it's, it's a reading by an author reading out of their book, that's one thing. And they're there to promote the book. But let's say you go to an open mic and it's just kind of strictly a, a poetry open mic. A lot of times um, people just don't let, let their emotions um, take over the room. They don't let the joy in the room. They think it needs to be very proper and I don't know, very tweed jacket, I don't know, golf clap. That's that's the way you think about it. It's like people are very polite and that's nice, but I'm personally of the mind that if you really like something, treat it like a rock concert, you know, hoot and holler. Um, in Des Moines, there's a lot of snapping in the middle of poems, not to interrupt the flow of the poet. So everybody can still hear, but if they say something that people like, you'll hear this undercurrent of, you know, the yes. snap, like, yes, like a jazz performance, mm -hmm. which is kind of the roots that I think it goes back to, but that's another part of the story. Um, but I, I always think that it's better to infuse the room with that, like infectious energy and joy. If you really like something, have some fun perform pieces that are going to speak to your audience. I mean, if you really have your heart set on reading poem XYZ, go ahead and read it and you get what you get. But when I get up to read things, um, I have thousands of poems that I don't read on stage because I just don't feel like they translate very well to the stage. I want something with more energy, more fun, or more emotion. Maybe it's sad, but still there's more um, emotion that's translated as I'm performing it face to face with someone as opposed to them reading it on the page. Mm -hmm. So there's a little bit of a difference between those two. Yeah. I, 
I remember in my early college years, I used to chalk my ID and go to New York and Poets Cafe, nice. which is in Manhattan. Yep. And first hearing the snaps in the middle of all of right. the, right, the really exciting, good, you know, poems and not understanding what was happening, right? Mm -hmm. But it only took me two or three poems and say, okay. Oh, okay. Snaps. I know. You get a little <laughs> goosebumps, don't you? Like, yeah. when you hear a really amazing line, it just clicks in your brain. You're like, oh my gosh, yes, that was so good. Snaps. Yeah. yeah, I love it. Can we hear uh, one of your works? Sure. Are you ready for this? Um, I can get there. So <laughs> tell me what you want. That's what I tell people. Like when I do a reading and it's and it's me just up there with a microphone. Let's say I'm a feature artist or something mm -hmm. at a slam or or a show. What do you want to hear? Do you want to hear? funny or heartbreak or <laughs> that's Ooh. always the question is maybe let's start with a, funny there's and a then lot we'll, of we'll save the heart I want to hear both <laughs> is the answer there's a lot of things um, I did read through you you were kind enough to give me a copy of this book that you're um, paging through right now and uh, I had to hold my heart I was so <laughs> touched so funny well how about funny with a little heartbreak uh, I'm very happy I, I like that. this is a funny one too we all have stories um, nobody's life story is very straight lined we all have curves and twists and oops I made a mistake and you you just uh, pick up yourself and dust off and figure out how to do better next time that's it um, I did a performance one time uh, probably one of my favorite performances ever was at the Iowa Women's Correctional Facility mm. and they had me come and do kind of a workshop and I read some things I played them some other people's things and we talked about writing and and these are ladies that are trying to get their GED and improve their life so when they do leave they're a better person and they were the best audience I've ever had and I say not because they couldn't leave they had <laughs> But they were engaged and they really loved it, but they had had some hard lives. And one of my favorite parts was they loved all the breakup poems. <laughs> they thought that was really, they were very much strong women trying to figure out how to do the right thing. Mm. And, and I read this and it got such a great response. I thought it was, <clears throat> I thought it was pretty great, but it's called In the Divorce, which speaks to a lot of people, so... I, I tried to mix a little bit of um, heartbreak with some humor because you have to. That's just the way it is. This is called <clears throat> it's called In the Divorce. I lost the crepe pan. Also disappeared many Pyrex dishes, 11 sets of queen sheets, my address book, all the French wine, and my Calvin and Hobbes collection. My children remember we had a nice yard full of garden. It was one rose bush that bloomed until late October. I refused to give him the quilt my grandmother bought us and I took every damn bookshelf in the house. I haven't, <clears throat> I haven't replaced the crepe pan. I make do. I make crepes every weekend and I make do. So there's that. Yay, little snaps. It was, you know, you get you get inspiration from lots of different places. So yeah. that's kind of fun. Yeah. Um, and I can understand why 
these women were loving these poems because it is a feeling that brings us closer together, right? Right. I think when we experience heartbreak, it feels isolating and lonely and unique to us. Mm -hmm. And when we kind of recognize in another spirit that they've gone through something similar, mm -hmm. suddenly you're creating that connection, right? Oh, right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um... And, and so have you had people approach you at the end of a performance and, and share a story? Or oh, always. Yeah. Always. Tell people me what. People have, yeah, people have stories about uh, things that they've written because of, I, I would read a piece during a performance or whatever, and afterwards you all, you know, s sit around and, and talk story or you meet up at the... Uh, when you're getting another coffee and you mingle in the crowd and people are like, oh, I wrote this poem after my bro my boyfriend left for Mexico or, you know, and he left me with no money. And But I felt so much better after I got it out or what. Everybody's story is different. Yeah. That's just the way it is. And that's the joy of um, if you enjoy writing and getting things down, then you get to tell your story in your own way. I like to read memoirs. I read almost entirely nonfiction and poetry. Oh That's, my god, I'm the polar opposite. I, yeah, like everybody reads fiction, and I I always laugh. I think, well, if I was, if I could make one wish, I'd be a really good fiction writer because so many people gravitate towards it. But that's not my fate. It's okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I read so many memoirs and I watch documentaries because I really enjoy the fact that um, people's real, true life stories are so unbelievable sometimes. Mm -hmm. Like, if you wrote that as fiction at times, if you wrote that as fiction, nobody would believe you. <laughs> They'd be like, you can't make that up. That's too far out there. No, it actually happened. Mm -hmm. Like, that's a real thing. Mm -hmm. um, so I enjoy that. So a lot of the stuff that I write tends to be, I'm, I'm very storyteller-like in my poetry and um, kind of confessional. Mm -hmm. You know, I just get things out. That's what I do. But there's also plenty of room for other things, too. I like to write about other people, mm -hmm. like per famous people. There's a lot of pop culture reference in my work, th sprinkled throughout. Um, someone I've read a biography about or seen um, a documentary about, done some research in history. The newest book that I did is just a chat book and it's called um, Atomic Eyes. And I've been working on it for a while and I finished it last year and I just self-published it. It's just a little chat book zine. So it's um, Xeroxed and put together by hand and things like that, which is kind of my favorite kind of book. But um, it's all about women of the beat generation. Mm. And if I know anything about anybody, I think I've read the most about those ladies because you always hear everything about the boys of the Beat Generation. Um, Kerouac. Like everything else. Everything. Kerouac and Ginsburg and Burroughs. Okay, yeah, we've heard it. It's fine. We've heard it all. They've got good stuff, but I found, I found that the stories of the women from that generation, whether they were writers or they were just, some of them are artists, some of them are muses, mm. wives, just, you know, but many of them are, are writers in their own right and they're fantastic. And so the work is really good, but the stories are even better. Mm. So that's really cool. So every poem in that book is, it's just a short little thing. It's just a 16 page chapter. I want to hear one. 
Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, talks about them, um, like the inspiration and the, the feelings I got from reading the biographies about that particular woman, about that particular scenario or scene or time frame, because they really, you know, we hear about Kerouac, but for goodness sakes, he lived with his mother his whole life, you know. <laughs> Are we, are, do we are we really still talking about this? Or are we talking about Diane DePrima who was raising five kids on her own by choice? That's the life she wanted to live. She's a poet and she doesn't need a man beyond, I wanna be pregnant and have a baby. My body's telling me this, my mind is telling me this. Okay, this is what I'm gonna do. And she did it. So they're fascinating creatures to me. I, I love the women of the beat generation. So. If there's ever a if there's ever a college class that needs to be taught by me, that's it. So. I love that. Do you, you want to share your Diane De Prima piece, or is that going to be too complicated to find? No, right I can't. No, I can. I've got. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I've got. I studied with Diane in um, California three different um, on three different occasions at writing <laughs> workshops, and I'm so lucky because she just passed away last year. Mm. And uh, I always tell people, people are like, how, how was she? What was she like? I was like, she was the most fantastic, amazing, creative, mean Italian grandmother you've never had. Like she would hold nothing back and tell you exactly what she thought. Um, if it's crap, it's crap. She'll tell you that, but it's all out of love. Mm. And because she knows you can do better. Heaven. Exactly, right? So um, we were talking about biggest influences and mentors. Like she was the first name that popped to the top of the list. Like David just looked at me, my husband, he just looked at me. He was like, well, it's Diane, right? I was like, yeah, <laughs> of course. Perfect. Um, but so this is just a little poem that I wrote. It's called Invitation for Diane DePrima. That invitation never gonna come. So I printed my own invented, invited myself. Bitter winter wind, raging flame elbowed past bespectacled blowhard boys, singing hymns to each other under bare 60 watt bulbs, two steps up a ladder in someone's ragged pad. I climbed three and took my key. Mm -hmm. So. That's a piece for Diane. Um, a lot of the the scene in the 50s, and uh, this is the beat scene, and I personally don't like the word beatnik. It uses, it's used all the time, it's in current vernacular, but it's really, I've read a lot of stuff, it's really actually a, a, um, a negative slang term. It, you know, someone in media, someone in advertising co-opted it and turned you know, everybody's Dobie Gillis in the beatnik world. So um, I've read some things where people in that generation were like, really don't like that word. Beat is fine, but beatnik is kind of a derogatory term. So I try not to use it. I don't like that term either. But um, the beat women um, would do whatever they needed to do in the day, work secretary jobs, work in publishing, work, I don't know, at a cafe, didn't matter. Um, so they could pay the rent, keep the lights on, feed their kids, and at night be scribbling away and writing and helping publish some of the most amazing 
mid-century literature that was really grassroots, like Floating Bear um, newsletters. Um, Hetty Jones was married to the poet Leroy Jones, who was Amiri Baraka later, changed his name to Amiri Baraka. And in the 50s, when um, interracial marriages were not uh, allowed in most places, they were in New York, so it wasn't illegal, but it was definitely frowned upon. And so she, uh, she broke so many barriers by just marrying the person she loved. And, and she helped him, they created um, some poetry, very early poetry chapbooks and newsletters that got sent all over the country and, and stuff. And she would, you know, be up in the middle of the night, baby sleeping in the next room. Um, and she's typesetting half the night away to make sure this happened. Leroy Jones didn't typeset that. She was up all night typesetting that. And then she got up and went to her job. So those are the type of women that inspire me the most. So there's another poem, if I can read this one Please. real quick. Um, this kind of opens this little book that I have. And it's, um, I actually saw an interview with her and Joyce Johnson on a panel somewhere in the 90s. And they were talking about just this situation where they were making art and, and, uh, and, writing and doing things just by hand, just getting it out the best that they could. And they made all these things by hand. And Hetty made a joke that they were all hand jobs, <laughs> which I thought was hilarious. And so, um, because they literally folded these books by hand mm -hmm. and stapled them by hand. And so the, the poem here is called Hand Jobs, How Literature is Made. Kitchen table because faith. We gather late nights filled, bread, body, wine, blood, fellowship, reward. Even as we own nothing else, we command lines, page breaks, typesetting in the dark until glorious golden orange dawns. Some bitter winter days, soup, and work our solitary sustenance. One watered down, one rich and full, fatty even. Every revolution includes paper cuts, long arm stapler, freshly opened paper boxes appropriated from dead temp office job. Tins of sausages, caviar, anything small enough to steal Ratty bed built upon shipping pallets, shoved in dusty corner, overlooking each incendiary book being built by hand. Yeah. Anyway, those are the people that I admire. You're a force <laughs> in your readings, and I think that has to be a component of the slam poetry, right, or the spoken word, is it's even delivered with a, a specific kind of beat, isn't it? I think, yeah, I think it is. And it, it becomes so subconscious. Like I, I'm sure that I've appropriated things from other people that I've heard perform and, oh, I like that style. Oh, I like, I mean, I know when I'm listening to people, there are some that I, you can really connect to because you're, you're getting it all. And some people rush too fast. You miss things like, oh, just slow down a little bit. So yeah. And, and I tend to be very, 
as Scandinavian as I am, you would think I was a little more Italian because there's a lot of hand gestures and and I can't keep my hands still when I read and I'm stuff. But one <laughs> of those, we are sisters in that, my friend. <laughs> so kind of segueing to how to teach someone these skill sets, I'd love to hear a little bit about your vision for this workshop. Um, that we're trying to promote with some some youth poets or poets in the making. Um, what, what, yeah, what, how will we? How will the day go? Uh, yeah, so we're just going to try. We're going to um, dip people's toes in it. So um, teenagers are such a great group. High mm -hmm. school and middle schoolers are such a great group to introduce to this because they're full of passion anyway. Yeah. For whatever it is, they're full of passion. So it's, it's really, it is, right? <laughs> it's really fun to um, just give them the introductory tools and then say, go get them. And so that's really um, what I feel like my job is to do is uh, kind of do, I always call it the spiel. Do the spiel. Let's talk about slam poetry. Let's talk about what it is, where it came from a little bit. Let me give you a lot of examples that aren't me, but out there on YouTube, you can find all of it now, which is awesome. You know, So these are some of the people that I admire. They do a great job. They're coming from all different um, places in life, places in the world. They're male, female, non-binary. They're every everything you can imagine. They're talking about all different experiences. And um, so I always have, I have like a little playlist that's all nicely set up when I do a workshop or or I've done this kind of workshop or, or uh, talk or something like in libraries a lot. And people say, you can come and do a teen thing for us. Sure, so let's talk about it. Let's talk about how, um, where it came from briefly. Show you some examples of, of what's um, possible. But let's talk about also how you can just dive in and do it. Um, yes, it's going to be scary for most of you. Um, no, you do not have to be a performer to do it. Although, like I said, in the slam world, the people who win a lot of slams, um, and I say that with air quotes, win a lot of slams, are often natural performance performers. And so they're connected with theater or whatever. You absolutely do not have to be. All you have to do is want to do it. Yeah. That's it, that's all. You want, if you, if you write or you want to start writing, um, absolutely come and hang out with us, learn about it. There's, that's the only way that you learn and you get better is you surround yourself with things. And whether that's punk rock music or slam poetry or cinematography and film, whatever your jam is, or food. Let's say you're a foodie and you're 15, you don't even know, but you start surrounding yourself by people with people who can show you what they do and you start reading about it. You start learning, oh, well, I wanna try that. And you just dabble in it and um, Everybody, no matter where you start, if you think you're terrible, you think you're great, doesn't really matter. Wherever you start, you start, and you always will get better. The more you read and the more you actually write, the better you become. That's just the unspoken truth of being a writer of any capacity. Yeah. You will continue to become a better writer. And the best part of about it is everybody has um, has their own unique story to tell and how they want to tell it. So um, it's important for people from all over the world 
to be able to tell their story because representation matters. And um, it's very, very important for people um, in Hawaii to be able to tell their story. And they have a completely unique perspective and uh, take on things and goals and dreams and love than I have ever had. Because I'm a different person. I'm a, a woman from the, a middle-aged woman from the Midwest. I have a completely different um, story to tell. Mine's valid, but theirs is also very valid. And to a point, I'm really excited about hearing those stories because their points of view I may have never been exposed to yet. And um, we're ready to hear it. Yeah. So yeah, let's let's get them the opportunity to um, just know that it's okay to write and perform. If that's what calls to you, absolutely, let's do it. So you know, come and hang out with us for this couple of hours. Learn about the stuff that I learned from and the things I've discovered along my journey, and let me help you move on to the next stage of whatever it is you want to try and create. Yeah. And what I love about the environment that you're setting, I mean, beyond saying it's a safe space, there's a place at the table for everyone. You have a very distinct story to tell being, you know, youth from this place. Mm -hmm. um, is that this is kind of a classroom free, grades free, teacher free environment, right? Oh, right. So you're a, a working artist, mm -hmm. right? Sharing your, your skill set, mm -hmm. right? You're not a teacher with a syllabus, right? And yeah. you know, a blueprint for how to ensure that there's measured outcomes for this, right? I mean, this is a real space with a real artist. The best learning comes because you want to learn it. Like I, in, um, throughout all of my educational settings, I rarely had a really good history teacher. Almost always it was just somebody going through the motions because they wanted to coach baseball or something. And that's the rest of their day job was teaching history. And so it didn't grab me. I can't tell you what I learned in most of my history classes. But what I can tell you is the history that really um, grabbed my interest. Either it's local to right. where I grew up. So I'm in, I'm in the very southwest corner of Missouri. And so there are lots of Ozark um, mm. stories that are interesting to me because I can physically, I know that place. Hey, I know that little town. I've been through that little town. Oh, you mean the notorious outlaws Bonnie and Clyde stayed in this apartment in Joplin, Missouri, right next to my hometown? That's fascinating. I want to learn more about it. And then I did. Or um, things that that have uh, piqued my interest because of my own self. Like I didn't discover the beats until I had graduated college. I never read a beat uh, writer, not even Kerouac. We didn't have any of that in either high school or college. And I felt like I had a really great education, but somehow that was that was absent. And so when I discovered it in the mid 90s as a bookseller, I was all in and I read and read and I still read everything I get my hands on because I enjoy it. it. It makes sense to me, it comes to life. And that's um, why it's important for kids here to be able to read other poetry or, or other kind of books, but read things about um, people who have similar 
background, they're from the same island, they're from the same um, community, and uh, they can really connect with what this person is saying because, oh, I lived kind of that same experience or I'm from that same part of the island and I love the way this person is talking about the world around us mm -hmm. and I've never seen that happen before. It's so important. Yeah, and one thing I tell um, artists of any age or artists right on the cusp of understanding that they're an artist is that inspiration is fleeting mm -hmm. and that if you have any um, interest or passion or desire in learning about words, even if you just want to rap, you know what I mean? Right. And learning about how to use them and perform yeah, them right? and how to handle on them. The time that you're feeling that that urgency, that urge is so fleeting. It's mm -hmm. going to go away, mm -hmm. right? So act on it. And while you're being offered the tools to engage at with Heather mm -hmm. at Sabato Studios, who is probably Wailuku's most famous artist, right, mm -hmm. in this environment. I mean, it's free, but what isn't to a child this age, right? <laughs> but it's such a unique opportunity, right? Right, yeah, it's such, it's, it's the, the main point is, it's fun. If it even sounds like something you might be interested in, I guarantee you'll come and have a good time just listening to other people's experiences and um, getting some, uh, points of view you've never seen, seeing clips off YouTube you've never seen, because gosh, I look at lots of stuff. So I found some of my favorite ones who, that incorporate humor, that tug at your heartstrings. You're like, oh, I had an upbringing like that. I know what it's like to shop at thrift stores. That's one of the pieces that I like to play as a, as a I think it's an ode to thrift store or something. And I was like, I know that feeling of, you know, scouring thrift stores because that was the budget I grew up on or whatever. You know, there's all kinds of things, but um, it's such a really free, open environment. There's no, you're not called to produce anything. You don't have to, there's no grade at the end. What better joy is learning something that you're not responsible for regurgitating information just to get a grade? Mm -hmm. Exactly. You know, just show up because you enjoy it or you think it sounds kind of cool or you and your best friend, hey, we should do that. Yeah, you should do it because just show up. It's free. Sign up and show up and, and it's two hours and then we're done and you can run with it after that. And, and hopefully in the near future when COVID has run its course and we get to settle back into something that's kind of normal and have in-person entertainment and stuff. You know, we're working um, with the Eow Theater on setting up a poetry slam and or an open mic session. So um, people that like to do poetry and spoken word can come um, and perform and have an audience and have feedback and just really get out and have a great time. Heaven. So hopefully soon. I'm ready. <laughs> big question mark. Yeah. yeah, big question mark. It's okay. When it happens, it'll happen. Yeah. And we'll embrace it with big open arms. But um, we were actually just getting there I when know. COVID hit. And so everything kind of got put on the back burner. But that's okay. We're still we're still waiting for our time to shine. And, and we're going to find some good homes. And probably not just the EL, but maybe a few other places around the island too. And, and be able to pop in and, and do spoken word hopefully on a regular basis. Yeah. And those would be open to everybody, not not just adults over 21. I think that's such a main important thing. Right. Uh, it, it really needs to be, and some, in, in my 
course of hosting in Des Moines, I have kids as young as eight and people into their 90s performing on my stage, which I think is the coolest thing ever. Yes. And everybody gets a big warm welcome. Everybody's embraced. Everybody's like, you were you were great. You were so brave to get up there. You did your thing. I'm so glad you came. Even if it wasn't their kind of poetry, people respect that because mm -hmm. it's hard to get up there. Yes. So um, it just gives people the opportunity to have that safe space and express themselves and just try out new types of artwork. Yeah. If this is something that sounds interesting, do it. You yeah. know, sure, give it a try. And I appreciate, Heather, that you're willing to do this um, in a pandemic moment, right? Because I think a lot of folks keep saying, when it's over, when it's over. Well, it's been nearly two years, right? right? I mean, it's we can't keep waiting until it's over, We're right? We're a continual pivot. <laughs> right, so it's... I like the idea of doing something now. We're going to do the social distancing. We'll be in a safe space. We'll keep masks. We're inside, but you know, at the same time, the skill sets that are that are going to be shared with you and then practice in that space mm -hmm. are just the seed, right? And then your exactly. students or your participants—I'm not sure what you want to call them yet—your slammers, your beaters—they <laughs> right? can take that with them, right? And right. Sure. Exactly. I, I just, the thing with mine is I, may, I used to make chat books because I just wanted to get things out of my journal and out into the world. It's the same way with slam poetry. I just want it to live. I want it to get off of the page and be out in the world so someone can possibly, res it can resonate with someone. Mm -hmm. It doesn't just live in my brain. It doesn't just live in my notebook. Um, and there's, it's so funny because I have, you know, I have hundreds, thousands poems over I'm 50 so over many years and I know the ones that are my favorite and so often people will say I loved that piece whatever they said I wouldn't have thought twice about that was their favorite piece mm -hmm. like I like it but it isn't the one that stands out to me so every piece will strike someone differently yeah. for a different reason you can never know what is important to your audience. Mm -hmm. You just have to let them decide. Yeah. So it's fun. It's fun. Yeah. We need more fun. <laughs> let's um let's close with one of your favorite pieces. Oh. Okay. What should I read? <laughs> I, I can't That's the question. That what I should see I all read? Of your little bookmarks and I your have little and your thumbed pages and I know. you can take all the time you need, but I would love to close with a uh, Heather knows me so <laughs> It's so fun to to choose. Um, how about I'll, I'll read this one called Joyce was erased. I really like this piece, um, and it ties back in with our beat discussion. So Joyce Glassman was Jack Kerouac's girlfriend in '56 and 1957, and he would stay with her when she when he came to New York. It was right before On the Road um, hit. He had written it, but it hadn't been published. And um, they just kind of, sh and she worked a day job in publishing and was writing by night and was totally in love with him, but they just weren't the right fit together. He was off, you know, running around the world and wasn't interested in settling down. But they were, uh, they were kind of this great fit for a while. And <clears throat> when... Uh, she was with him the morning that the New York Times book review hit for On the Road. And his world changed immediately. 
because <coughs> he got a really great um, review in On the Road. And so and that changed everything. And so later, and you can see, you and I can see, on my notebook I have a picture of, there's a, in the 90s, Gap um, did a series of ads and there's a picture of him in front of a bar and it just says Kerouac wore khakis. But if you look at the real pictures from that session, um, Jack is not alone in that picture. Joyce is actually in that picture too. And I thought that was such a uh, telling, uh, striking image is that they erased her yeah. from this. And uh, women are often erased from a lot of men's narratives in history. So I wrote a poem about it. It was called Joyce Was Erased. <clears throat> the skies backed up against downtown, anxious for release, and I am awaiting another penny postcard, words heavy with your summer scrawl, delivering relief to this July city heat. I'm glad you're far away because you are a roadblock death sentence for my creativity. You crawl up in my brain, parasitic, and take over. I haven't written in weeks. Except letters. Back to Florida, full of addresses and reviews, and the view is becoming destitute in this tiny world of my typewriter, one room flat, and the bed is lonely when I'm the only one not really sleeping in it. We have a picture together outside the neon lights of some bar that took us near broke and hungry for the fame of our own large, wor own large words in bold print, desperate for our names in lights. Selling out isn't even a flicker in 1957 America. We just hope to eat this week, make others understand the way we view this promised land on the train to equality and enlightenment. I don't think much about our future, just when I'll hold you next, make you scrambled eggs, because for all I know, in 40 years, you could be a salesman in khaki pants and I might be erased. There you go. <laughs> Chicken skin. Oh, Joyce. <laughs> Eternal slam mama, Heather knows Nigard. Thank you so much for spending time with me today to talk about your workshop and your art and your work. And if you have any final thoughts to share. Um, I just I just encourage people, even if they're not workshop bound, because you know there's plenty of grown-ups around here too that like to write, just dive in, read everything you can read, anything that strikes your uh, fancy, grab it and, and read it and learn from it and um, just let it move you to create whatever kind of art you make, whether that's um, writing or uh, static art or interpretive dance or whatever it is you do, um, gosh, we need more artists mm. in the world because it's a really bland, boring um, existence without that art to express ourselves. And so if the last two years have taught us everything is we really do need artists because gosh, what would we have done without all of our books, 
and movies and podcasts and songs and things over the last 18 months right. hold up in our apartments. <laughs> so um, just allow yourself to play. And if someone else doesn't understand your art, that's okay. It's not your job. Your job is to create your art, whatever it may be, and, and let it speak for you and enjoy the process of doing it. And it's others pe other people's issue to figure out what they like because yeah. we all have such different tastes and that's okay but um have some fun with it yeah enjoy it perfect thank you so thank you so much that was easy Ta -da. <laughs>